Welcome to episode 77 of Lucretius Today. I'm your host, Cassius, and together with my panelists from the EpicureanFriends.com forum, we'll walk you through the six books of Lucretius's poem and discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. We encourage you to study Epicurus for yourself, and we suggest the best place to start is the book Epicurus and His Philosophy by Canadian professor Norman DeWitt. For anyone who's not familiar with our podcast, please check with us at epicureanfriends.com for a discussion of our goals and our ground rules and to comment on anything you hear in these episodes. In this episode 77, we'll read approximately Latin lines 1028 through 1105 from Book 5. We'll talk about how nature prompted humans to form languages and the beginnings of organized society. Now let's join Don reading today's text. Nature compelled them to use the various sounds of the tongue, and convenience taught them to express the names of things, like children, before they can well speak, are forced to make use of signs, and are obliged to point with their finger to the objects that lie before them. For every creature is sensible what faculties it has and how to use them. So calves, before the horns appear upon their heads, will butt fiercely and push with them when they are enraged and the whelps of panthers and lions will defend themselves with their claws and feet and teeth when their claws and teeth are scarce to be seen. And all kinds of birds, we observe, trust to their wings and rely upon the fluttering support of their pinions. But to think that one man gave names to all things and that men from thence learnt the first elements of speech is absurd and ridiculous. For why should one man distinguish everything by a name and use the various accents of the tongue and at the same time another not be as capable of doing this as he. Besides, if others had not the use of words among them as soon, how could they be acquainted with the use of them? Or by what art would this one man make them known and understand what he designed? One alone could not compel the rest, and by force make them learn the catalogue of his names. He could not prevail by reason, or persuade men so unfit to hear to do so as he directed nor would they bear with patience, or by any means endure, to have the strange sounds of unintelligible words any longer prattling in their ears to no purpose. And then, what is there so very wonderful in this, that men to whom nature has given a voice and a tongue should, according to the various knowledge they had conceived of the great variety of things, distinguish each of them by a proper name? when mute cattle and the several kinds of wild beasts express their passions by different voices and sounds, when their fear, their grief, or their joys are strong upon them, and that they do so you may observe from evident examples. For when fierce mastiffs are at first provoked, they snarl, grin, and shew their hard white teeth, and threaten in their rage with lower sounds than those they read the air with when they bark and roar loud. But when they gently lick their whelps with their soft tongue or toss them with their feet or seem to bite and fondly gape as if to eat them up but never touch them with their teeth, they show their pleasure with a whining voice. Not so as when they howl left by themselves at home or when they whimper with their crouching bodies to shun the coming blow. And does not the horse with different neighings fill the air when, hot in blood and in the prime of youth, He is sorely galled with the spurs of winged love and rages in his lust among the mares and, eager to engage, with open nostrils snuffs the scent. Does he not shake his trembling limbs and neigh for other reasons with far other sounds? And then the feathered race, the various kinds of birds, the hawk, the osprey, and seagulls, 
that live and seek their food in the salt waves, they throw out other notes at other times than when they strive for food and fight for prey. And some will change their hoarse voice according to the different qualities of the air, as the long-lived ravens and the flocks of crows when they are said to call for rain and showers, and sometimes to cry for wind and storms. If therefore the different perception of things will compel these creatures, mute as they are, to send out different sounds, how much more reasonable is it that men should be able to mark out different things by different names? You may desire, perhaps, to be satisfied in other inquiries. Know then that thunder first brought down fire to the earth. All the fire in this lower world is in a great measure derived from thence. For many things, we observe, are set on fire by lightning, when the vapors fly out from certain quarters of the heavens, and the branches of trees pressing hard upon one another, when they are driven backward and forward by the winds, grow hot, and by the violent agitation burst out into a rapid flame. And sometimes the boughs and bodies of trees, by rubbing together, will kindle and fly out into a blaze, and thus fire might be produced from either cause. But the sun first taught mankind to dress their food and soften it by heat, for they observed the fruits in the fields grew tender and ripe by the warmth and power of his rays. And so those who had more wit and sense taught their neighbors every day to leave their old diet and their former way of life, to enter upon a new course and use the benefit of fire. And now their kings began to build cities and to raise castles as a defense to themselves and refuge in time of danger. They divided the cattle and the fields and gave to every one as he excelled in beauty in strength and understanding, for beauty and strength were then in great repute and bore away the prize. At last, riches and gold were found out, which soon took away the honor from the strong and beautiful. Even the brave and beautiful themselves commonly follow the fashion of the rich. Thank you, Don, for reading that today. We have now progressed from running around in the forest. <laughs> to the openings of language and maybe closer society. So let's see, where shall we start? Well, it seems we're starting with language, at least in the uh, the first part of that section there. I want to ask Martin later on about the branches and the fire, but we'll leave that for a little bit later. You know, right. We've talked about that in the past. I remember in exactly. the episodes, we came across that, and that was a, a matter of uh, dispute, I believe, when we talked about it before, so it's coming back again here. But you know, Don, when you made the reference to the language, I was looking at that first paragraph and trying to fit how the first one fits into this sequence today, and, you know, looking at many of these things from sort of a DeWittian point of view that anticipations or preconceptions or prolepsis ought to be some kind of, of an intuitive thing. I suppose this first paragraph before he gets into language might be not just a transitional introduction into language, but also he's talking about even when you're young, you don't even have, if you're a calf, you don't even have horns yet, but you're already being disposed by nature. You have a, a premonition, I guess, that they're going to develop and that nature is leading you to defend yourself or to, or to interact with others. So what do you think about the first paragraph? Yeah, I think you're absolutely on to it. it. It's it's hilarious to watch young calves. I I, I um, have seen some young musk ox um, that are known for butting their heads against each other in the in the Arctic, and and the, the the babies will do the same thing whenever they're running around the fields and like butt into tires and trees and things like that. And it's it's hilarious to watch because there's no horns there, and I, that's exactly what I thought of whenever uh, Lucretius was describing the 
the calves butting their heads and things. Yeah, I've seen goats, I think, do mm-hmm. something similar as well. For every creature is sensible what faculties it has and how to use them even when they're so young that those faculties haven't developed yet to the point of being in their highest and best use. And of course, that's relevant to because he's about to launch into a discussion that language was not given to us by the gods or remembered from some prior life. He's launching into a discussion of, of it coming from our nature as humans, I guess. Mm-hmm. Martin, do you have any thought about uh, you, you've had a lot of comment on sort of the evolutionary aspect of, of things and how some of what Lucretius talks about is or is not related to that. Before we launch into the real issue of who selected the words and all of the detail of language there, do you have anything about that first paragraph that, for example, where the bird, the young birds are fluttering their wings even though before they can fly? I mean, he has not an example where he goes from observation with just a simple conclusion to what is then presumably cor- correct. No? So, so he sees that at least the higher species of animals all have some sort of communication and practicing their skills uh, in a way that the small, the, the little ones do the things or, or try to do things what the adults are doing. And uh, so, so in this way, it makes sense to conclude from there that the development of, of, of language in humans is very similar to this. Yeah, and I think I think it's great that he, he uses the exact example of, of human children, too, pointing at things and trying to communicate in a rudimentary way before they can even use words. So the, the, the basis for communication is there even in a pre-verbal state. Mm. Right. It's it's that aspect of things that continues to interest me that I, I don't know that I can articulate exactly why or, or where I think it leads. But as Martin has been commenting the last couple of weeks, it's uh, his paradigm is not starting from zero and evolving at a very slow pace over time, like I think our current viewpoint is. It's like Nature's really performing the functions that you sometimes think of, or I sometimes think of, as God, or as, as we would do ourselves if we're creating a machine or something like that. He has nature in this role that these faculties are there at birth. I mean, I guess that's the point Martin was raising, is that he's he's got fully formed human beings coming out of the ground in the early stages of the Earth. And I suppose in the same way that this Earth is able to give birth to fully formed human beings, nature is investing in particular types of creatures, particular types of faculties. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting, too, that, that he uses language like, you know, nature compelled them or I'm looking at the Loeb translation, you know, nature drove them to utter. And it, it seems to be giving nature a um, what, what do I want to say, a, a, an active principle. So, yeah. I remember there's a section in the DeWitt book where he says that what Epicurus would be talking about would be human nature and wrestle with that in the past yeah, as well. I, I've, as, I've not always been convinced by that. I, I did look at, at the, the Lewis and Short definition for, for the for natura, the, the Latin word that's actually used for nature. And there are some things here in the definition itself. It's like the natural constitution, property or quality of a thing, the the nature, course or order of things. You know, the consistency with nature. So it is sort of like Einstein's or Spinoza's God that, you know, we're talking about. That's just the, the sum total of the physical 
laws and order of things that uh, he might be talking about. And that if you have nature writ large in a certain way, this is the way things are going to play out. So whenever he says that nature compels them to do this, it might just mean that if things are the way they are, this is the way things are going to play out. So there doesn't have to necessarily be a, you know, nature capital N personified, but it's just a, that if things are set up this way, then this is the way things are going to happen. Yeah. Beings are going to be compelled to do this. Yeah, that that helps explain the issue because it's very interesting to me that you know you could you could go along with what you've just said and never go to the next step of sort of personifying nature as Venus or or at the end of the book where he talks about death and he has what if nature were to say these things to us and so forth. Right. Um, the relationship of his personification of nature to the physics one of the points he makes is call upon carries if you like or call upon gods if you like as long as you don't allow yourself to go into the supernatural side of things maybe he thinks it's harmless maybe Mm -hmm. he thinks it's useful maybe he thinks it's accurate in some way i guess those those are that would be one way i would describe the problem going through my mind is is he doing this because it's useful is he doing it because it's i guess helpful is the same thing or is he doing it because it is in some way accurately describing something well you also have to look at it too i mean he is writing a poem i mean he's you he's using poetic language and he's using metaphor and he's using illustrations and he's you know come using like you said the the gods of the harvest and dionysus and those sorts of things personifying these things in a poetical sort of way so i think that as a background it's the whole honey on the wormwood cup again to use his own analogy right at least some of it though would exist in the more original text i think the, the phrase the one that always comes to mind is give thanks to nature that she and i said i, I garbled it last week and i'll garble it again this week <laughs> i try to quote it but that she's made the necessary easy to get something like that mm-hmm. so it's not just lucretius but i agree with you the, the poetic form is going to bring that out well anyway that's part of the ongoing issues in interpreting lucretius and epicurus that we're not going to solve today so what we have is passage 1041 is where we get right into the issue of where did language and words and so forth come from. And I will put in a plug here for I tried to read the Sedley paper on on nature book 28. It's available on I believe it's academia.edu. Uh, free, it's freely available on the Internet if you if you search for it. But man, it's dense. There is a lot of stuff going on. I think there's like 79 pages on on the paper that Sedley writes on 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 Nature Book 28. But I think it's so important to have that original writing by Epicurus, even if it, if it is fragmentary in some places and there's a little bit of reconstruction, but there's enough there that Sedley can really dig into the whole origin of language and the implications of it. And it, it's a fascinating read. But wow, my my eyes were starting to cross after a while with all the the convoluted arguments and everything. Well, what did you get in the most fundamental terms? Are we are we back again to contrasting this with Plato as the major thing we need to do or what? You know, oddly enough, it seems that the Megarians, the uh, philosophical school of Megara, uh, are the ones that seem to come in for the most play in, in this particular one. And I find it interesting that there is a paper, if I remember from Laertius, that Epicurus did actually write a treatise against the 
Megarian school. Mm-hmm. So this seems to be the ones that he's really going after in this particular one. But it seems to me, at least from what I could glean, that it is the whole idea of that there doesn't have to be a specific relation between the word itself and the thing that it describes, that Epicurus is going along the lines that language evolved from the feelings that you feel about particular things and exactly what Lucretius is saying here about that you see animals use different tones of voice and different growls for different situations. It seems like Epicurus was saying the same thing with humans, that they have particular reactions to things and the verbalizations and utterances that come from those are the things that finally get attached to things in the world. Well, Don, the Megarians are one of those Greek schools whose name does not give a whole lot of hint as to what they stood for. Did, did exactly. you pick that? Did you pick that detail up or do you remember? Well, that, that they, they seem to be one of the things that Sevely talks about in the article and that Epicurus wrote about in book 28 was the whole idea of, and this was later on in the arguments, but knowing and not knowing something at the same time. And the, the analogy that they used was the uh, the hooded man riddle that I guess was used by the sophists and the Megarians to illustrate this point about language that you if you use a word and you don't know you you can know what it means and not know what it means at the same time and the whole idea is that a person is presented with another person with a hood over their face and the person is asked you do you know this person and of course the hooded person has is, is disguised so you don't know who they are and the person oh no i don't know that so they take the hood off and here it's the the person's father so they they knew them all along but they didn't know them when they had a hood on so now you obviously don't know something and know something at the same time because you actually know the person, but you didn't know them because there was a hood. It's, it just seemed like a ridiculous argument <laughs> to me, but it was like a riddle that the sophist used to say, ha ha, well, you can, you can know something and not know something at the same time because it's, it's the same person, but you, you both knew them and not knew them. So there's a whole section in book 28 on fiddling with that riddle. Yeah, we talk about Plato a lot and not to say anything good about him, but it certainly looks like there were others who were far worse than Plato ever thought about being in terms of playing word games. Exactly, exactly. And that's, I think you said that really well, I think. I think that's what Epicurus was trying to get away from. He was always looking for even words that were eventually used for abstract concepts and that sort of thing. He always wanted to go back to the original meaning. I thought it was interesting that one of the things that Sedley talks about here from from book 28 is the idea of the word canon for void, for emptiness in atoms and void, and that the original meaning is basically the analogy he used was, was the inside of an empty box. And if you put your hand inside an empty box, you can move it around. So the whole idea of canon, void, or emptiness is the ability to move around. So atoms are constantly moving in the void. And if you use canon as an abstract concept, you still go back to that original meaning of the idea of an empty box and the ability to move, and that transfers directly over to even whenever you're using it as an abstract concept. So he was always trying to go back to the original meanings of words, even if they were used in that abstract sense. Martin, you jump in anytime. I do that. If I have an idea that I can really contribute, I'll do that. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, this one's kind of deep. I'm not sure whether I think that the primary point here is the aspect of whether one man, one man came up with a word and it somehow spread to others, or whether we're talking maybe more abstractly about whether a word is somehow naturally connected to the thing that it describes. 
Because right. I know that there is a lot of that thought, at least in some people who read some of the letter to Herodotus. I think there's some discussions there about phantasms, uh, those different Greek words that I'm not competent to to struggle with. But I mean, certainly there there is the the conceptual issue of what is a word, what is a concept, are they in any way naturally linked to the subject that they're discussing, or are they purely made up by man right. for our use in describing things? And that goes into this whole issue of universals that we were talking about recently right. as well. It could, could certainly get very deep here. But Don, do you have a sense about whether he's primarily concerned about whether a single man came up with words as a practical question, or is he immediately here more concerned about the abstract issue about whether a word has any kind of natural connection to the thing being described or not, if that makes any sense. Yeah, at least here in Lucretius, it definitely seems like he's talking about the fact that it doesn't make sense for one man to impose his words for things on everybody else, because if one man could do it, then every other man could do it. And so there would be competing yeah. candidates for, for whatever you wanted to call something. And then language would never arise because everybody would be speaking their own language. Yeah, that's a particularly interesting part. I guess that's part of this paragraph 1041, what we were talking about, because it's, you got that same circular issue about how could the gods have created a planet or the universe when they didn't have a pattern to go by. Right. It's related to that, I think. Yes, that's a really good point. I think that that's the idea, uh, or at least an argument for the natural arising of language from the idea of, you know, the sounds that dogs make or the sounds that birds make or the sounds that horses make that, you know, well, humans in their infancy, whenever they rose up out of the earth, so to speak, is that they are making noises in reaction to things. And as time went along, those utterances then became attached to those things within different groups. And so then everybody would react the same way because they were part of the same community. And then that's how that particular language would, would rise up. One of the things that I believe I remember from reading from the, the book 28 stuff too, is that that's one of the arguments for different languages too, that different people living in different areas would have different reactions to things. And that's why different languages arise because not everybody has the same reaction to different phenomena, and that's how different words would come to be associated with technically mm -hmm. the same thing. The, the, you know, you look at the same thing in one area and look at the same thing in a different area, you might have different reactions to it. And that was one of the arguments for different languages arising in different places. And I guess he's reinforcing that in the next several passages or paragraphs here by referring to the different types of animals, the cattle and the mastiff and the horses who communicate themselves so that it should not be something that seems overly wonderful to us or magical that the humans would be able to do this as well. Exactly. We don't, in a reverse kind of way, we don't think that what the cattle or the cat or the dog are doing with their communications is anything magical. We don't think that they're in touch with some kind of divine being or divine ideal realm that their communication is in any way connected like that. So why should we think that ours is either? Exactly. I think that I think that's well put. And it's another one of those things, too, that Epicurus is always seems to be going back to children and animals to look at how nature manifests itself and even, you know, pain and pleasure. And so even in the origin of language, he's looking at nature and 
children and animals to say, well, here are the rudiments of what we're talking about. And this is where the natural progression of where things came from. Mm -hmm. If the different perception of things will compel these creatures mute as they are to send out different sounds, how much more reasonable is it that men should be able to mark out different things by different names? Exactly. It's just and so what that line seems to say to me is that the language that humans speak is just an advanced form of the sounds that dogs make and horses make on a different level. But it's a difference in I can never remember how that it's a difference in degree and not kind. Is that the right way of putting that sort of thing? Right. Exactly. The, the point is <laughs> exactly right. The reverse would be the platonic view, I guess. There, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah <laughs> we don't, we don't think that our communication is different in kind than the communication of the dog running around barking at the burglar. Just more complex. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating subject. And whenever he was talking about the one person coming up with names for things and making other people use them, I could not help but think about constructed languages like Klingon and Elvish and all those sorts of things with it are created by one person and that are used in various forms of entertainment and books and things like that. But they couldn't do that if the idea of language and communication didn't already exist. So even even though you do have people coming up with you know fully blown languages themselves, you still need the underlying concepts that are involved in language for, for them to even do that as well. So it's not like they came up with those names, even though those words may never have existed before. You still need the, the underpinnings of language and linguistic to, to be able to do something like that even. Don, I think that this 1087 we were just talking about serves as sort of a dividing line. And the last two paragraphs we're going to talk about today move on to a little bit different subject. So why don't we go on to the final two paragraphs that we have for today, 1091 and 1105, because the subject seems to change. What do you make of the subject that we're turning to, Don? I think it's interesting that he brings up the, the whole idea of fire and then the, the fact that it was so instrumental in changing the way people lived because he's really talking here about changing their diets and the, they cook their food and it's a whole paradigm shift from running naked in the woods and eating acorns well is he intentionally just contrasting this with the prometheus myth of a god bringing down fire to us or oh i, I think that that's definitely part of it I don't, it's not said explicitly but i think that's definitely you know we we got fire and we did not get it from the gods we either got it from it coming down from lightning or from the branches of trees rubbing together <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the branches of trees what do you guys remember about the prior discussion martin i do remember you're being involved in that because i think you were maintaining that it is possible that this happened do you remember that it, yes i remember it but i cannot find the source from where i go and when i uh, just looked through again I, I find a lot of contradictory statements on here so branch on branch, I found, found uh, one answer. No, that's not happening. But elsewhere, I found in bamboo forests, that may happen. So that in that case, it's not so much branch on branch and stem against stem. Because, uh, I mean, I know this f uh, from having seen bamboo forests, actually. So this, uh, depending on what species it is, these bamboos really bend easily in the wind. And that, that may lead to considerable fraction against uh, each other. So that means Indians' account of this friction of tree against tree causing a fire may make sense. Then in, in, in another answer, it was said it's not a rubbing branch against branch. It's a rubbing of leaf against dry leaf against dry leaf. But this does not really convince me because you need force to create sufficient friction to the heat and leaves are too soft. They will just decay before they get hot enough, is my expectation. 
that it uh, would cause fire. And then something which we didn't find, uh, which we didn't find last time, another way the, what uh, may happen is that rocks falling down a slope and hitting then another type of rock may create sparks. And if the forest is very dry, especially dry leaves, so once you have a spark hitting them, the, the, the fire will start. So, so in a dry forest, once the fire starts, the spread is easily explained. And then, of course, a trivial examples are often actually observed, apparently, or at least attributable, is the, the lightning. Then, of course, uh, the, the heat from volcanic eruptions uh, cause fires and probably the impact of meteorites in, into a dry forest may start fires too. Oddly enough, I was doing a quick internet search here and there's a book from 1910 called The Legends of Maui, A Demigod of Polynesia. And there's a line in it that says, the natives of Depeaster's Island say that their ancestors learned how to make fire by seeing smoke rise from crossed branches rubbing together while trees were shaken by fierce winds. So that's huh. from Polynesia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is unexpected. Yeah, the, the branches at the top of trees going back and forth in the wind strikes me as, as a pretty reasonable way that that could happen. But I no, I don't I, I don't think we found that the last time we talked the Polynesian example. That's good. That's I, I, legendary I, I, or that, that is, yeah, that's the, that's what they're they they believe their ancestors learned to make fire by seeing smoke rise from crossed branches rubbing together while trees were shaken by fierce winds. So it doesn't say what kind of trees they were or you know what that kind of thing. But just the fact that that is from Polynesia and the ancient Greeks and Polynesia did not have any contact from what I can remember. <laughs> but it does still just see, I have to agree with Martin that it does seem a bit improbable as a general rule. Well, in this paragraph that we're in now, we extend the rubbing together of the branches to the issue of men learning to cook their food by observing the sun basically ripen things. Now, that strikes me as a little bit odd as well, that we would learn to cook based on the sun. I could see that because, I mean, if you leave something out, it's it's going to dry. Um, I mean, I could see them. I mean, if there, you were making jerky or something like that, you would, you know, sort of get the idea from seeing either fruits or, you know, even animal carcasses get dried up by the sun. And it's like, well, well that might be interesting. And just to sort of experiment with that. But I, I could see that as at least a possibility. I'm not much of a cook at all. But is that something that people traditionally do is dry things out in the sun? Oh, yeah. Of- yeah. I mean, yeah, you see like like uh, Alaskan communities and things like hanging up salmon and that sort of thing. And Native Americans, that was a big thing to dry, dry their food in the sun to preserve it. Oh, in Africa, they're drying fish. And this dried fish, if you put it in a soup, it just falls apart. No? So it, it's no more the body of the fish. It's then the, the very small pieces into which the case makes then for an apparently thick soup. No? Yeah. yeah, so I could definitely see that as being it. And, and I think your, your point about the whole idea of contrasting it against Prometheus bestowing fire upon humans is is, is, a, is a good point too that it, again that goes back to this this is a natural occurrence and here's how it could have happened and these are some various theories on how people started cooking with fire and how we got to you know use fire to make things so I think that that is a good observation on your part as well okay well the the final passage we have today is 1105 begins to move us to another transition. We decided to stop here for today, but next week, in the middle of all this science, we go into one of the most ethical sections that's in the whole poem. But the transition phase is this passage 1105 that we have here today, where he talks about kings beginning to build castles, and then he ends on a sort of a sarcastic or poetic or or some kind of interesting comment about how even the brave and the beautiful 
people themselves commonly follow the fashion of the rich because he's talking about the brave and the beautiful being the commodities that kings valued the most at the start. But even the brave and the beautiful follow the fashion of the rich. Isn't that true? I mean, (laughs) yes, I think it is. Exactly. It's kind of like gold takes over everything. Gold takes precedence over beauty and bravery and there's other things, which I can't believe he's really happy to observe. But nevertheless, he's probably right. It does in many cases. Yeah, I I remember a a line from Thoreau's Walden that uh, he was talking about that he just wore plain clothes that he made himself and things like that when he was living in the woods and he was deriding the whole idea of fashion. He says, you know, somebody in Paris puts on a hat and everybody in the United States puts on the same hat, you know, that sort of thing. This very last sentence may be something that goes equally or if not better with what we're going to talk about next week, because this last sentence is clearly something that's negative And the remedy for it is what we're going to discuss next week. Exactly. Yeah, this is this is like a teaser. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I think, again, I think that he he sets up perfectly the whole idea that, you know, that's how, you know, kings came into power and then gold was discovered and that took the place. Because it seems to me that this is saying that that, that beauty and strength and, you know, that sort of thing was our our tangible concepts that we can see. You know, if somebody's strong and and helps out the community, we can, you know, appreciate that. If if, if somebody's beautiful, it's like, oh, you can appreciate that. But then once gold was found and people took riches that way, that that's how everything else was. This abstract concept of gold as a as a commodity was the thing that superseded even the the natural things of beauty and strength and that sort of stuff. But he starts the paragraph with the idea that, again, the way of organization is not handed down by a god or whatever, but that those who had more wit and sense taught their neighbors to leave their old diet and enter upon a new course of life and use the benefit of fire. Yeah. I find it interesting, the, uh, the, the last few lines there in the, uh, the Perseus version that uh, is, uh, thereafter wealth discovered was and gold was brought to light, which soon of honor stripped both strong and fair for men, however beautiful in form or valorous, will follow in the main the rich man's party. That is very interesting to me. Like you said, it's true in many cases anyway. Mm -hmm. At least in pop, I'm thinking things like pop culture and and that sort of thing and fashion. And I mean, it's it's somebody who's rich gets imitated by a large segment of the population. So isn't there one of the Vatican sayings about love of money? It's not exactly the biblical version, but remember what I'm talking about, though? It's Vatican saying 43, it looks like, is going to be the love of money, if unjustly gained, is impious. And if justly gained is shameful, for it is unseemly to be parsimonious, even with justice on one side. I was thinking to myself before today, I wanted to go back, especially given what we're going to talk about next week, and look at whatever there is left of Philodemus's property management. But okay, beauty and strength strike me as something that clearly come from nature, and you can see nature being directly involved in. But I wonder if money is in the same category. I tend to think that it's not. Yeah, money is definitely a concept. Money is something that a community agrees on, just like, you know, a paper, a piece of paper. You can go out, exchange it for a piece of bread. That's because everybody agrees that, okay, this piece of paper is worth X number of loaves of bread if you want. But money is definitely an abstract concept. And I noticed that the Epicurus Wiki translates Vatican saying 43 is to love money unjustly as impious 
while to do so justly is shameful because it is improper to be stingy even justly. That's a good example of one of those sayings that's really kind of hard to decipher. You, exactly. want, to de- you want to decipher that, Don? Uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's clearly it's clearly <laughs> saying something negative about the love of money and of right. money, but the way that justice is thrown in there would probably take far too long for today to try to dissect it, but there's something about... You know, and of course, the the whole Epicurean concept of justice is is so difficult as well. I suppose if you were to just insert by agreement there or contractually, you could potentially make some sense out of it in saying that it doesn't matter whether you gained it by agreement or by stealing it. It's still unseemly. Yeah, I think I think it always goes back to it seems like that you know if i remember correctly in uh, in philodemus i mean it's it's that you you shouldn't be and even some of the other sayings that you you shouldn't be stingy because that will show people that you're stingy and so nobody will want to be your friend and so you can either be stingy or be profligate in your you know doling out money because then people will just want you for your money and the other direction they won't want to be your friend or help you out because you're stingy and so there's there has to be some sort of, you know, I hesitate to say middle path or something, but but that's that seems to be there's something in there like that. Don, this is an example of where I certainly wish I had dedicated my life 50 years ago to understanding Greek because you'd have to be able to understand the Greek. But part of what jumps out at me as a problem with what it's saying here is parsimonious means, like you said, stingy a moment ago. Stinginess is not necessarily to me something that comes up this consistent with the rest of the meaning of this paragraph, because it it seems to me that the focus is on money and how you gain. Now, what does stinginess have to do with that? Exactly, exactly. it seems to me maybe that's a poorly translated word and that, uh, and that the whole focus all the way through is on your love of money because parsimonious is not a word that jumps off my tongue every day. But it, and it does mean stingy as opposed to just loving money, I think, although there might be some similar words that just imply love of money that, that might be more accurate there, I guess is what I'm suggesting is maybe more consistent with the meaning because you can certainly make sense of it if you say that loving the money that you gain justly is impious and loving the money that you gain unjustly is, is shameful and just leave right. it at that and not try to work stinginess into the, exactly. to the concept there. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. I think that some, especially in some of these things I think we're going to talk about next week, again, teaser, is really has to do with the English English translation, and you really have to go back and, and look at the Greek originals and see what it actually says, because a lot of that, I think, does come across. And, and I think a lot of it is, you know, moralistic and, and just the way that it was translated at the time was translated and things like that. So that's 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 a big I, I fully agree with you there. But for now and for today, this last sentence and what we're talking about now, it's an interesting juxtaposition to me to consider how it fits in with beauty and strength, because right. like I say, those seem to be be natural endowments that you can fairly easily trace back to nature immediately. But to me, I don't know that gold or riches are necessarily something that are as closely connected with a natural preconception or a natural anticipation or something. Yes. You, you recognize what's strong and you recognize what's beautiful at a pretty early age. 
Right. I would think that that would be something that nature, young of all kinds, or at least humans, I think certainly you could say that. But as far as money and that goes, that would be one of the ways that I think I'm going to work on distinguishing the subject next week is that joy and delight can occur and braveness and beauty and all sorts of things in the world. But the further you get away from the natural dispositions to things like money, the more difficulty you're going to have. I fully agree. I, I think you're definitely onto something. I agree. Martin, we're beginning to run long for today. Do you have something new to add right now or any closing thoughts if we get if uh, you're no. ready to look to that? No, no comment. I've said everything already. All right. Well, Don, any closing thoughts for today? No, I think I just, like I said, I would just encourage people to look up that Sedley paper on, on Nature, Book 28. It's a, it's a fascinating read if you're interested in the whole idea of the origin of language. And of course, what we were referring to as well today was Sedley's Lucretius and the Transformation of Greek Wisdom, which probably looks like one of the best Lucretius books that I've never read, and maybe some others haven't been exposed to it either, but it certainly has a lot of good raw material in it. I agree. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll have Charles back with us next week, and we'll move on in book five as we begin to close in on the ending of book five. So if nobody has anything else, we will close for today. Sounds good. Thanks, right. bye-bye. Talk to bye-bye. you soon. Bye-bye.